The uh, February 2005 issue of Reader's Digest had an interesting letter to the editor. In this issue, a father sent in a story about their first visit to the pediatric office for their newborn son. He writes, the father writes these words. He says, we brought our newborn son to the pediatrician for his first checkup. As he finished, the doctor told us, you have such a cute baby. Smiling, I said, oh, I bet you say that to all the new parents. No, the doctor replied, just to those babies who really are good looking. Out of curiosity, I asked, so what do you say to the others? The doctor responded, he looks just like you. (laughs) I've received that comment a few times about Bennett. You know, it it is our natural inclination to want to feel proud of of our kids, isn't it? When we have a son or a daughter and we raise up our children and somebody gives our child a compliment, boy, we puff up with pride, don't we? We want them to receive praise. We want our children to be commended in their schoolwork, on the athletic field, or in their artistic pursuits. And just before the big game, or the big test, or the big performance, we whisk them away with the words, Make Dad proud. Make Mom proud. We want them to do well. The title of my sermon today is Make Me Proud. Make Me Proud. And in just a moment, we're going to read about the story of a mother who wanted her sons to receive the highest honors. She, like most mothers, desired that her children would be honored by their achievements and receive an appropriate reward. Her request is not altogether unusual. All parents do want the best for their children. We want our children to succeed in life, but the question I'll be asking today is is twofold. First, what does it mean for my child to succeed? What does it mean for my child to succeed? And secondly, on what basis will I evaluate my child? On what basis will I evaluate my child? When you turn to your child and say, make me proud... Does your son or daughter understand that comment to mean make lots of money? Get accepted to the right university? Get the highest paying job? Marry the best possible spouse? Or do they hear you say, make me proud, may your life be lived in conformity to Jesus Christ? Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. Matthew 20, 20 to 28. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with, with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And Jesus said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? 
They said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You shall indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brothers. But Jesus called them to Himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Will you pray with me? Father, Lord, we at this time desire as parents, as grandparents, as individuals in this family at Coast, we desire, Father, to hear from Your Word. We desire to know what it means to be a follower of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we endeavor to read this story today, to pull out lessons that we can learn from it, we pray, Father, that Your Spirit would guide this process, that Your Spirit would transform our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Preceding our main text today are some situations between Jesus and the disciples. Leading up to chapter 20... Jesus has had some very, very unique interactions with the disciples. In essence, they have been asking one question over the last couple chapters. And that question is this, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Jesus, who's going to be the greatest? What is it going to be like? In chapter 18, verse 1, the disciples collectively asked Jesus, This question, chapter 18, verse 1, they said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest? Just a chapter later, Jesus was in dialogue with a rich young ruler. This man ultimately recognized that he was incapable of giving up his riches to follow the Lord. And after the young ruler left, the Apostle Peter thought to himself, Well, we've given up our riches. We've given up all that we have. What's in it for us? Take a look. Chapter 19, verses 27 and 28. Peter says this, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Notice the promise of rulership here. Chapter 19, verse 28. The twelve thrones. You see, in in the Jewish mind of Jesus' day, there was a coming kingdom of God. And in this kingdom there would be positions 
of governance. Positions of authority. Positions in which faithful men and and those who had followed Yahweh God would be able to exercise authority in the coming kingdom of God. Those who were faithful would be given authority. And here we see Jesus affirming this. He says, yes, that's not just your conception, that is the case. There will be authority given in my kingdom. But you see, for the first century Israelite, the kind of authority that they were looking for was vastly different than the kind of authority Jesus wanted for them. For a first century Israelite, to be a ruler in the kingdom of God was quite another thing from what Jesus had in mind. You see, for the past eight centuries, the people of Israel, and really, and even more so if you go back further, but the people of Israel, for the past eight centuries in particular, have been under foreign oppression. They've been battling small tribes in the land. You know, you know of them well. The Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, and, and others. Moreover, they've encountered world powers. Powers like Assyria. Powers like Babylon. Powers like Greece. Powers like Rome. In Jesus' context, they're dealing with imperial Rome. And all of these regimes were brutal regimes. All of these world powers and Canaanite tribes pestered and bothered and oppressed the Jews. They were tired of foreign oppression. They were tired of imperial Rome. They were tired of the taxes, the pagan influences, and yet they were too weak to overcome their pagan overlords. And so when Jesus says that you will be granted authority in my kingdom, what comes to their mind is Rome. We are going to judge Rome. Who is going to get to judge Caesar? Who is going to get to stick it to those Roman guards? Which one of us is going to be on that throne overseeing those pagan nations that once oppressed and mocked us? Who will get to judge Caesar? That's what they thought. We see here in the context the twelve thrones are actually thrones that are to be ruling over Israel. But believe me, the Jews had a much larger picture in mind. They wanted to judge those who had mocked them, scourged them, oppressed them, and afflicted them. And so when the disciples asked the question, who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You and I should hear, who gets to judge Rome with you, Jesus? Who gets to judge Rome? And so we come to Matthew 20. And in Matthew 20, we see the story of a Jewish mother asking Jesus to grant to her two sons the highest positions of authority in Jesus' kingdom. Take a look at verse 20. It says this, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him this, Grant, give 
grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. Actually, that word grant there is actually the Greek word say that. In other words, speak the word. Let it be so that you would give to my sons the right hand and the left hand of the thrones in the kingdom of God. A couple of preliminary questions. Who is this mother? Uh, actually, this mother is quite possibly named in Scripture. Her name is uh, Salome, S-A-L-O-M-E. She, and we can combine some uh, other Scriptures to conclude this. She was very likely, I won't say very likely, she was possibly the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. There are some scriptures that suggest that she could very well have been the sister of Mary. Who were Salome's two sons? None other than James and John. James and John were the sons of Zebedee in the New Testament. They were two of Jesus' most intimate disciples. They were part of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. And these sons were labeled by Jesus as the sons of thunder in Mark chapter 3. A name perhaps indicative of of their emotional temperament. You see, James and John, if you remember in Luke chapter 9, they they were all the disciples and Jesus were walking toward a Samaritan village and the village said, no, we don't want you to come in. And James and John turned to Jesus and said, shall we call down fire on the village and burn them? Jesus said no and he rebuked them. But he perhaps called in the sons of thunder because of their emotional temperament. These men were zealous. Perhaps zealous for power. Perhaps zealous for authority. And yet they were very faithful men to Jesus Christ. Notice her request. Her request is this, that my sons would sit on the right and on the left hand of your throne, Jesus, in the kingdom. The two highest positions of honor. Let's look at Jesus' response. Verse 22. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Now, at first glance, we might naturally assume, reading our English texts, that, well, Jesus is responding to the mother. He's responding to Salome. And he's saying, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. But in reality, the word you there, if you look at it in the original language, in the Greek, it's actually a plural pronoun. It's a plural pronoun. In other words... The mother asks Jesus a question. Will you say the word that my two sons will be given the highest positions of honor? And Jesus receives that question and He turns. And He answers to James and John. He says, you do not know what you ask. It's not difficult to reconstruct this story here, is it? You see, James and John, being the zealous kind of men that they are, They were desiring of power and authority. While faithful, they did want those positions. They perhaps wanted the opportunity to judge Rome with Jesus and to judge their fellow countrymen. But, if you read in Mark 9, you see the disciples murmuring about who is the greatest and yet they didn't want to tell Jesus that that's what they were talking about. They were too ashamed. And so, they had this desire And yet they didn't want to tell Jesus because, well, that would be inappropriate. And so what did they do? Come over here, Mom. Mom, i got a secret for you. 
Yeah, I want, I want you to do something for me, Mom. I, uh, I want you to go over to Jesus there and ask Him on our behalf that, uh, that we would be the best of the best in the kingdom. Now, what mother can deny her son's request, right? Now, it's not, unlike, it's not like this, this, this poor mother was, was tricked into this, though, no. She certainly would not have asked the question had she perhaps not agreed with the request. Let me say again, she, she certainly would not have asked the question had she not agreed with the request. And so it was her desire, too, that her sons be given this honor. We like our children to be praised, to be honored, don't we? And so the mother says, okay, I'll do it. She goes over to Jesus and says, Lord, I ask you this request. Will you give my sons the two best spots in the kingdom? And Jesus knows full well who's asking him that question. And so he doesn't direct his response to the mother. He turns to the disciples who asked it. He turns to James and John. And he looks at them and he says, you do not know what you ask. Verse 22. Jesus continues. Are you, plural, okay, he's still speaking with James and John. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. Drink the cup. Be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. What does that mean? In Here again, in the first century context, to drink the cup was often indicative of a kind of suffering that one might experience. To drink the cup meant to endure some kind of trial, some kind of suffering, possibly even some kind of death. Do you recall in Matthew 26 when Jesus says these words to the Father? He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. These were the words of Jesus just prior to his betrayal, arrest, crucifixion. And what imagery does he use to communicate to the Father his desire to avoid this impending death. He says, the cup. Let this cup pass from me. If at all possible, Lord, let this cup that I am about to drink pass from me. It was an image of suffering, an image of trial, an image of death. What about baptism? Throughout the Scriptures, baptism is understood to be a physical symbol of an inward reality. Of an inward spiritual reality. Those who are saved by faith in Christ get baptized as a physical demonstration to all of us that yes, indeed, I am a child of God and I intend to follow the Lord Jesus Christ with my life. Baptism, in essence, is a kind of identification. It's a way of identifying with the Lord and a demonstration to others that we are with the Lord. And so when Jesus says, are you able to drink this cup? Are you able to be baptized with this baptism? He's saying, in essence, are you able to endure the the suffering that it would take? Are you able to identify with Me in the way that you must identify with Me in order to become 
rulers in my kingdom? We're able. The word there is actually one word in Greek. They speak one word. Yep, we can do it. You know, I, I, uh, I thought about this answer long and hard, all week. And I, I, um, I don't know what the tone of this, this answer was. I really don't. I don't know what was behind this answer. I don't know if they were being prideful. I don't know if they were being naive. I can't tell if they were determined. Had they counted the cost as they made this answer to Jesus? You know, really the the Scriptures don't seem to indicate the tone of this comment. I will say one thing for sure though. The fact of the matter is, these two men made good on their promise. They made good on their promise. So it seems to me that they were probably very determined as they were answering, we are able to do this. They were determined. You see, James, one of these brothers, he died a martyr's death. You turn to Acts chapter 12, you'll see him dying at the hands of Herod. And John, while tradition has it that he most likely did not die a martyr's death, nevertheless, he endured great suffering, great trials. He was ultimately exiled to an island, Patmos Island, in the Mediterranean. These two men, for whatever tone they may have had in this comment, in this response, they made good on their promise. They made good on it. And so Jesus, knowing full well that they will make good on it, notice what He says in verse 23. And He said to them this, You will indeed drink My cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. He says, you're right. You will do this. But to sit on My right hand and on My left hand, that's not Mine to give but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Despite knowing that these disciples would in fact risk all for the cause of Christ, this request, this request of theirs that they had asked for was not one that Jesus was able to fulfill. If you notice in the Gospel of Matthew and in really all of the Gospel accounts, you'll notice Jesus oftentimes deferring to the Father on matters concerning the last days. You'll notice in some texts, Jesus saying, I don't even know the hour of that day. Only my Father knows that hour. And this is a demonstration of Jesus' humble and willing submission to God the Father. He came on behalf of the Father to do the Father's will. And Jesus, though He was God completely, In totality, He deferred to the Father. He willingly submitted to the Father. And and this is one of those instances. He says, James, John, I can't fulfill that request. I know you're going to suffer for me. I know you're going to die on my behalf. And yet that request is not mine to give. That's for my Father to decide. He has someone prepared for that position. Moving on. Verse 24. And when the ten heard it, that is the other ten disciples, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Now that word displeased is a little deceiving uh, because it's, it's a lot more 
There's a lot more emotion than that. The word means angry, upset. They were upset. They were angry with their fellow disciples. Upon hearing this exchange, this dialogue between Jesus, James, and John, the other ten were downright mad. Why were they mad? Again, perhaps we can only speculate. Perhaps they deemed the request inappropriate. How dare you ask him that? Yet, that doesn't seem to jive with some of the other texts in which they're asking Jesus, and what are we going to get? What are we going to receive? You see, the disciples were very much concerned with what they would be rewarded with. So maybe they didn't deem the request inappropriate. Secondly, perhaps they felt James and John were excluding the other ten from future glory. I think that's pretty likely. They said, why are you being so exclusive? Why are you keeping us out of the loop? The third, and and perhaps a little ironically, perhaps they were angry that they had not thought of the request first. Why couldn't we think of that? Now, I imagine that, that they were upset about the exclusivity of James and John. They were upset because these men were going off apart from the other twelve and saying, Jesus, we want you to show us the special favor. Whatever the reason, Jesus uses this as an opportunity. In the times of great emotion, in the times when your kids are most upset, when your kids are crying, or when they've lost the big game, or when they failed on a test, and their emotions are high, parents, those are the times in which you teach. Those are the times in which you have the greatest opportunity to communicate truth to your child. And Jesus is no different. He knows exactly when to pounce on a situation and to bring forth spiritual truth. And that's what he does right now in this heated dispute between James and John and the other ten disciples. He says, come over here, boys. I have a lesson for you. Come over here. Listen to these words. Verse 25. Jesus called them to himself and said this. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who, who are great exercise, excuse me, those who are great exercise authority over them. Now, pause for a second. Why is Jesus citing the Gentiles here? Who are the Gentiles? Well, the Gentiles are non-Jewish people. They are the nations. And we might wonder, why is Jesus beginning this story by alluding to Non-Jewish nations, non-Jewish people, non-Jewish authorities. As we've said earlier, James, John, and the rest of the disciples have grown up in a world where honor, power, and authority were acquired by means of physical force, oppression, and tyranny. The Roman rulers... These Gentile rulers have lorded over all of Israel for the past century. Their treatment of the Jews has been harsh and overbearing. What Jesus describes in verse 25, this quick allusion to the Gentiles, resonates deeply in the soul of the disciples. They say, yes, I resonate with that comment about the Gentiles lording it over us. They rule over us with an iron fist. And at this point in time, being tired of foreign oppression, 
tired of imperial Rome, tired of the taxes and pagan influences, at this point in time, it is perhaps the hope of the disciples that, okay, he's going to announce the kingdom right now. Here's your opportunity, Jesus. Here's the perfect time to declare an end to imperial Rome. Take hold of your throne as king of all the earth. Just say the word. Say the word and we will humbly accept your position as overlords in your kingdom. Just say the word, Jesus, and yes, we will graciously, graciously accept the positions of authority that you want to give to all of us to stick it to the Romans. That's their hope. And yet Jesus is not going to do a comparison between the Gentile tyranny and the rule of Messiah. He's not going to compare the two. He's not going to say, look what they've done, and now, yes, we are going to do the same. No. Jesus is going to do the exact opposite. He is going to show a stark contrast. He is going to show that what the Romans are doing and have done what the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Grecians, and all the rest have done to Israel, he says, you are not to do to others. Notice verse 26. Yet it shall not, it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Wait a minute, Jesus. What about our position as overlords? What about the opportunity to enact revenge? What about the chance to, to bring retribution? Jesus says, no. Today is not that day. Today is not that day. If you want to be great... In the coming kingdom of God, Jesus says, you'll be like a servant. You'll be like a slave. He's saying, in essence, my kingdom is a different kind of kingdom than Rome. Honor, praise, and authority in my kingdom are different from that of Rome. In my kingdom, Jesus says, positions of honor will be given to those who exhibit lowliness and humility. That's my kingdom, Jesus says. In my kingdom, the responsibility to rule and to reign will be given to those who esteem others as better than themselves. That's my kingdom. In my kingdom, the highest praise, the highest commendation, will be given to the one who thinks and acts as a servant and a slave. Of others. That's my kingdom, Jesus says. Don't worry about Rome. Don't worry about the government that you are currently under. Don't worry about the United States government. Don't worry about the state of California. Don't worry about the, those pestering authorities in Orange County. He says, when you get an opportunity to lead and to have authority, you're not going to be like them. He says, and the opportunity to even get that, get that authority, to even get that honor, to even get that glory, he says, it will be by the most unlikely means 
You won't have a long resume. You won't have a list of accomplishments. You will exhibit lowliness and humility. You will be a servant. You will be a slave. And then you will be honored. Verse 28, he gives the prime example. Just as, just as, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The word for there. In Greek, it means in the place of, or on behalf of, substitutionary. Jesus, interestingly enough, verse 28 is the first instance in Matthew in which Jesus undeniably, undeniably declares the purpose of his death. Elsewhere, Jesus has predicted his death in Matthew. But here in 2028, is the first time in Matthew that Jesus gives the purpose for his death. The purpose is that he would be a ransom on behalf of many. Now what about that word ransom? You know, today we look at that word in 2007 and we might think of uh, kidnapping, right? Payment for a kidnapper. Payment to a kidnapper, rather. A child gets kidnapped, we might consider paying a ransom. Uh, We might also think of terrorism. Perhaps terrorists have taken some people hostage and they're asking for a ransom of some sort, and so we we consider paying a ransom. That's what we think of in 2007. What did the Jews think of in 30 AD? They thought of this. They thought of ransom in terms of this, that it was a payment to secure the freedom of a slave. That's not exclusive. There are actually some other options there. But by and large, when a Jew of the first century heard the word ransom, and it wasn't used very very often. In the New Testament, it's not used often. When they would hear that word, they would look back in their Old Testament scriptures and they would find, by and large, that a ransom was paid to secure the freedom of a slave. Secure the freedom of a slave. In some instances... Uh, a, a poor Jewish man who fell on hard times would give himself up as a slave. And in Leviticus 25, you can read about how the family can pay a ransom to get their family member back. It's kind of a, an, an indentured servant situation. Nevertheless, a ransom in the first century, payment for the freedom of a slave. Go back to the imagery now of verse 26 to 28. Notice what it says. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a payment for a slave for many. Do you see the slave imagery now. Do you see the servant imagery in the text? Make no mistake that Jesus is in essence saying this. He's saying, remember this. I purchased you when you were a slave. Scriptures say we were slaves of sin. Remember that I purchased you when you were a slave of sin. Maintain the perspective of a slave as you think and act in the world. That's what's going on here. 
He's saying, I bought you when you were a slave. I purchased you. I freed you when you were chained to sin. I freed you, slaves, all of us. And he says, I want you to remember who you are. I want you to remember where you've come from. I purchased you as slaves. I want you to maintain the perspective of a slave in all you think, in all you do. You should consider others as better than yourselves. You should consider how to serve and be gracious toward others. You were a slave. I want you to continue being one. Friends, when Jesus urges the disciples and all of us to become like slaves in their treatment of others, in essence, he's telling them that the words and actions should be a reflection of their own understanding of utter dependence upon God for redemption. We are slaves. We were slaves. We have sinned and become estranged from God, but now Jesus has bought us back. He has purchased slaves. But he reminds us where we've come from, and he urges us to remain in that mindset. You know, we started today with baby dedications. And that was a, again, that was a special time for our church family, for these parents. The title, um, going back to the title as well, the title of the message, remember, was Make Me Proud. We were looking at two questions. What does it mean for my child to succeed? And how will I, on what basis will I evaluate my child? And did you hear the first parent vow of today? Let me read it to you again. It says this, Do you desire to dedicate your child to the Lord for his use unhindered by any personal ambitions you may have for your child? Man, that's an important vow. You see, in the, mother, in, in the mind of the mother, and in the mind of James and John who urged their mother to ask Jesus that request, personal ambition was big. They wanted authority. They wanted power, authority, honor, They wanted the highest commendation. How are you raising your children today? Are they unhindered by your personal ambitions? Are they unhindered by your your personal aspirations for them to achieve worldly success? Are you willing to lay your children before the Lord and to say, Lord, have your way with my child? There's some things that we can learn here today that I want to close with. First is this, application. God does not measure you or your child by the world's standards. He doesn't, he doesn't use that evaluation stick. He has a different kind of measure of success. Two, God is not pleased by our physical achievements, but by thoughts and deeds that exhibit the lowliness and humility of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's His standard. Three, greatness in the kingdom will be given to those who think and act as a slave toward others. Jesus says, remember that I purchased you when you were a slave. I want you to remember and maintain that mentality throughout your life. Parents, I I, I say one last thing to you. Um, Your children are always going to be looking for your approval. It won't stop. I today look for my parents' approval. 
and I'm, I'm not a child. And yet I still appreciate and enjoy it when my parents say, well done, Neil. Parents, remember, your children are always going to look for your approval. Always. I urge you, I urge you in the strongest possible terms to make sure that your children know that the one and only concern you have for them, the one and only goal you have for them, the one and only hope, the one and only thing that will make you proud of them is if they exhibit the humility of Jesus Christ. Is if they are a servant. Can you imagine what it would be like to raise a child who has that knowledge? My mom and dad are proud of me because I am a servant of Jesus. Man, that is what it means to raise your child in the spirit and admonition of the Lord. I pray that all of us, whether we are parents or whether we are young adults, teenagers, grandparents or elders, whatever the case may be, let us raise the children of this church in such a way that they will know we are pleased with them only when they are more like Jesus Christ.